couple weeks ago, we began talking about uh, Joseph and uh, his early life, how the providence of God is, is evident in the life of Joseph. We talked about his birth and the unique circumstances there, his early life, up to the point here in chapter 37 that Joseph gives his, tells his brothers about the dreams that, he ha- that he's had, so much so that the, he gets to the point where his brothers want to kill him, but instead of killing their not-so-dearly-loved brother, they instead put him in a pit, and then they sell him into slavery. Look at chapter 37, verses 26 to 28. So Judah said to his brothers, what profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh. And his brothers listened. Then Midianite traders passed by, so the brothers pulled Joseph up and lifted him up out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver, and they took Joseph to Egypt. Down in verse 36, it says, Now the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and captain of the guard. In a few short moments, Joseph's life had completely changed. He had gone from favorite son to forgotten slave. I want to show you several things about uh, Joseph tonight. First of all, he was forgotten. He went from favorite son of his father, coat of many colors and all the, the blessings that came with that, to a few short moments, maybe days later, he's a forgotten slave. To his brothers, he's forgotten in the sense that the problem of Joseph was gone. <laughs> we don't have to deal with him anymore, that dreamer. Now, granted, Joseph's brothers certainly never forgot about Joseph, did they? You cannot do that to someone and then all of a sudden forget about it or somehow not remember what you've done to someone. But they certainly did forget about him in the sense that they didn't have to deal with him anymore. To the Midianite traders that Joseph is sold to by his brothers, he's just another slave. To the slave traders, when he gets to Egypt, he's just another slave on the selling block. Even to Potiphar, verse 36, Potiphar purchases him. He's another slave that hopefully would prove valuable in some way. We'll see, you know, he might come to something, he might not. As was probably true of slaves in these days, Joseph was on the path now of being a forgotten slave who would live in turmoil live to do someone else's bidding, and then die a death with probably little to no acknowledgement whatsoever. He was forgotten to everyone but God. Jump ahead to Genesis chapter 39, verse 2. Genesis 39, verse 2. Joseph was forgotten by everyone but God. We see here that Joseph, even though forgotten by everyone else, he was not alone. Verse 2 in Genesis 39, we see a phrase here that's going to be important for the rest of the life of Joseph. Verse 2 says, the Lord was with Joseph. He had been through so much, and yet the Lord was with Joseph. This phrase comes up four times here in chapter 39. You see it in verse 2. You see it in verse 3, talking about Potiphar saw that the Lord was with him. comes up in verse 21, where it says again, the Lord was with Joseph. 
And then at the end of verse 23, it says the Lord was with him. Forgotten by everyone else, Joseph is remembered by God. When nothing else was working for Joseph, God was working for Joseph. Forgotten by everyone, and yet God has him right where he wants him. Thomas uh, Jacob, an old Puritan minister and writer, says this about the providence of God. He says, providence may sometimes be dark and mysterious, yet it is always just and righteous. We said this a couple times last, week, last time when we talked about Joseph. You know, what was going through his mind when he was in the bottom of the pit? Or maybe when he was sold into slavery, maybe when he was purchased by Potiphar. You think Joseph's thinking, this is great. God's going to work this out. I just know it. Probably not. Did he trust God? Yes. Providence is always viewed in which way? Best viewed, I should say. Hindsight, right? You get through life, you get through that time, and you look back and you say, ah, that's where I see the hand of God. But in it, it's very challenging. And that's why this old Puritan, he says, providence may sometimes be dark and mysterious to us in it. We're not sure what's going on. For Joseph, it was survive another day. Later on, he looked back and he said, okay, I see where God did what he did. But in the moment, it's survive another day. So sometimes it is dark and mysterious. We don't understand what God is doing, yet it is always just and righteous. And we don't always see the just and righteous part until we get further on in life. I know people here could give testimony to that being true. There was a dark and mysterious time of life, not knowing what was going on in my life, not realizing what God was doing. But now that I look back, I see God's hand in it. Genesis 50, verse 20, Joseph does this. These are the classic verses where he looks at his brothers and he says, you meant evil. And did they? Oh yeah, they did. They wanted to go so far as to kill him. By the, by the staying power of God, did Joseph even retain his life at that point? He said, you meant evil for me, but God from the very beginning meant for good to happen to me. Meant it, what you did, for good. Now, he says that to his brothers, but there's a lot of people in Joseph's story that he could say that to. We're going to see that, one person specific, a couple people, specifically in chapter 39. It seems like there's a lot of people in Joseph's life that he could have said, you meant evil for me, but God meant it for good. And what Joseph is pointing out is that God, all these people that mean evil for him, God is superseding all of that. He supersedes all of those people to work out the mysterious designs of his providence. Here in chapter 39, verse 2 and following, we see that at Joseph's darkest moments, he was not alone. The Lord was with Joseph as he always promises to be. He doesn't remove the pit. He doesn't remove the slave market. He doesn't remove Potiphar. But he is with Joseph through those things. Isaiah, in Isaiah 43, 1, would later write, But now thus says the Lord, who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. 
When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. That's Isaiah talking to Israel. The New Testament comes along later and tells us in multiple different places that God will never leave us nor forsake us. The Lord was with Joseph. And because God was with Joseph, Joseph was blessed. The presence of God in the life of those living for him brings the blessing of God. Thirdly, we see that Joseph was blessed. Look at the second part of verse 2 down through verse 5. The Lord was with Joseph, and he was a successful man. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian, and his master, the Potiphar, saw that the Lord was with him. That's a very unique phrase. And that the Lord made all he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and served him. Then he made him overseer of his house, and all that he had, he had he put under his authority. So it was from the time that he had made him overseer of his house and all that he had, that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and in the field. Joseph was a blessed man. And because Joseph had the blessing of God on his life and he resided in Potiphar's house, Potiphar receives the blessing as well. Now, we don't know a whole lot about Potiphar. He's mentioned at the end of verse 37, I'm sorry, verse 36 of chapter 37. The Midianites had sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and captain of the guard. Chapter 39, 1 says that Potiphar is an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian. He's the one that bought him and had him taken down there. So Potiphar is some high-ranking official for Pharaoh. He's a captain of the guard, as he's referred to. I don't think he was nobody. He was something in the economy of Pharaoh. But when he purchased Joseph, did Potiphar know anything about Joseph? It might not have even been Potiphar that did it might have been one of his, his people that went down and purchased Joseph and said, hey, let's get some more hands around here. Let's get some more workers, whatever it might be. But yet Potiphar quickly realizes there's something special about this guy. Verse 2 calls Joseph a successful man. Joseph had some savvy. He had some leadership. He had some moxie. He had the it factor, whatever you want to call it. There was something about Joseph. Now, we see that later on when he rises to power, second in command of all of Egypt. We see his wisdom and his might on display, right? We see his success, his leadership, his organization, and what he does with the famine. But we see some of that here, too. And Potiphar, verse 3, it says he catches on pretty quick. He realizes the Lord is with this guy. I need this guy on my team. He realizes that whatever Joseph does, it goes well. And so verse 4, Joseph found favor in his sight. He served him. Then he said to him, or he made him overseer of his house and all that he had, he put under Joseph's authority. So Joseph goes from favorite son to forgotten slave. And now all of a sudden he's in a leadership position in this important man's house. So much so, verse 6 says, that he left all that he had in Joseph's hand. And he did not know what he had except for the bread which he ate. So Joseph is the administrator of Potiphar's household. And Potiphar trusted an outsider. 
a Hebrew slave. And Potiphar is blessed because of it. There's a little verse in Proverbs 22, 29 that I think describes Joseph very well. And it says this, Do you see a man who excels in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before unknown men. Joseph excelled in what he did and God blessed him and brought him to that position of authority, that position of opportunity in Potiphar's house. Joseph was that man. Now notice verse five, it says, right in the middle, Potiphar has made him an overseer of the house. The Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. Don't miss this. The Lord blesses a pagan Egyptian and his household because of one of his own. He doesn't bless him because of Potiphar. Oh, Potiphar, you're so great. You know, here's some blessing. No, he blesses the whole household in which Joseph works for Joseph's sake. This is part of the promise that God gave to Abraham. If you, if you go back to Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, you'll see that God told Abraham that the Hebrews, your descendants, would be blessed and would be a blessing. You're going to be blessed by God, but then you're also going to be a blessing to others. So here, Joseph in Potiphar's house, he is blessed by God, and then he also is a blessing to those around him. What we also see here is that in God's providence, in his sovereignty, in his mercy, the sun shines and the rain falls on both the just and the unjust. Jesus said that in Matthew 5, 45. He said, he, God, makes his sun arise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So in the merciful providence of God, and this is something that's often hard for us to figure out. We come to God and we say, why would you do that? Why would you bless people that, that are, are anti-you? But in the merciful providence of God, he at times chooses to bless even the unjust. Does Potiphar fall in that category? I would think so. Being a pagan Egyptian, he falls in the category of the unjust, and yet because of God's blessing on Joseph, Potiphar receives blessing as well. Now don't miss this part. I'm kind of building to something here, and this is what it is we see a great illustration of the Christian in the world today. Terrific illustration of the Christian influence in the world that we see today. Our world that we live in, and even unbelievers, though they would never admit it, they would never say so, are much better off because of Christians in the world and because of Christian influence in the world. Because God blesses the world, even unbelievers, he blesses them vicariously through us as believers. And an unbeliever would never say that, right? The world system, uh, uh, an ungodly politician would never stand up and say, we are so blessed because these Christians are around. They would never say that, but they cannot deny it. And here's some practical reasons why. Number one, like with Joseph, as God blesses his people, those blessings spill out on our community as well. 
So you're living in your neighborhood and we're living in this community and this state and in this country. And as God blesses us and works with us and as we live for God, that makes you a better neighbor. It makes you a better citizen. It makes you a kinder person, which then does what for our society? It blesses it. It helps it. Our world is better off because of the Christian influence in this world. A couple other ways this is true. Jesus refers to it. We mentioned it this morning. He calls us light. Paul in Ephesians 5, we'll look at this passage next week. He says, light exposes the darkness of evil. You realize how dark things would be in our world if it wasn't for Christians who shed the light of the truth and expose the evil? Jesus also refers to us as salt. What does salt do? It retards corruption. So he says the presence of believers is holding back some of the corruption of of evil. The world is very corrupt even with that salt. Can you imagine what the earth, what the world would be like if not for the evil resisting influence of believers? You think it's bad now? Take every believer out. Take every... uh, uh, sanctuary or temple of the Holy Spirit in this earth out. Oh boy. Do we want to even imagine what that would be? You know what I think it would look like? As it was in the days of Noah, when the thoughts of man were only evil continually. So it is the Christians. God is actually blessing our world and blessing unbelievers through the Christian influence, through the light and the salt that we are. But there's some other ways too, very practical ways. So many that we can't even count them, very practical ways that Christians have been a blessing, that what God is doing in Christian people has been a blessing to the world and unbelievers. Think of how many hospitals that you've either been to or known are either a Baptist hospital or a Methodist hospital or something like that. Many of the hospitals or hospital systems that have been started in our nation were started by believers. Think of relief services like the Red Cross, Samaritan's Purse, those types of things that are a blessing to the world and that help in natural disasters and other times. Believers. Think of community services, some of these better than others, but originally started Christian, something like the YMCA. The C in YMCA stands for what? Christian. Not too many people know that probably. Something like the Habitat for Humanity. They've kind of gone a little bit off, but started Christian. Salvation Army, those relief services, those community services. Think of the pregnancy centers. I was talking to uh, uh, Richard Beal earlier today, and he said, tell me about the pregnancy center that they have over in Ashland and how they've been able to be involved in that and all all of these babies that have been saved because the mother has seen the ultrasound. And they were going to abort, but that's a blessing to our world. And that's Christians that are involving themselves in that. Take the Christian influence away, guess what? That's gone as well. Missions work. And I'm not even talking about the gospel as part of missions work, which is obviously the most important. But think about missions that have gone all over the world and done things like digging wells and given hunger relief and give medical care to people. Think about education. Much of our educational systems, though now a little bit messed up, were originally formed by Christians. Much of our large and prestigious universities started by 
Christians. Christians led the way in literacy and knowledge. God blesses the whole world vicariously through the work of believers. What you do in your community, in your home, in your school, in your job is to be a blessing. It's to be salt and light and to be a blessing to those around you. The prophet Jeremiah said this in talking to the people that were held captive, God's people. He said, seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it. For in its peace, you will have peace. Seek the peace of where you are. Christians should always be good citizens, should always seek the flourishing of the communities that God has placed us in. You know, that's part of the goal for our church and our ministry here, that Bucyrus and the surrounding communities would flourish in part because of the presence of Christians at Wayside Chapel. That's true. That Wayside Christian School exists first for the proclamation of the gospel, but also then to be a blessing and to help in the flourishing of our community. That because kids and and families are getting a, a biblical Christian education here, that that then scatters out and is a blessing to our community. So like Joseph here, who could have just wilted and withered and said, who cares? But he didn't. He stepped up and he said, I'm going to flourish. I'm going to do the best I can in the place that God has put me. And I challenge you to do the same. Like Joseph, be faithful where God has placed you and seek to excel in whatever you do. Ecclesiastes 9.10 says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. Don't go about it half-hearted. Do it with your might. 1 Corinthians 14.12, seek that you may excel to the edifying of the church. Because it may just be that God is wanting and working to bring a great blessing through you. Not just to your family, not just to this church, but also to the surrounding community in which we live. And what a great light and what a great influence that would be for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Joseph was forgotten. He was not alone. He was blessed. And then... We get to that part in his his story in this passage, he was tempted. Chapter 39, verse number 7. Came to pass after these things that his master's wife, that's Potiphar's wife, cast longing eyes on Joseph, and she said, lie with me. As if Joseph hasn't been through enough already, as if the pit wasn't enough and being, being traded into or sold into slavery wasn't enough. He comes to what may be his toughest test yet. Now, the end of verse 6, it tells us that Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and he obviously caught the eye of Potiphar's wife. We've already seen here that he was wise. He was a leader. Joseph was the whole package. And Potiphar's wife here, verse 7, tempts Joseph to lie with her to commit sexual sin with her. Now notice what she does. She casts longing eyes on Joseph. She said, lie with me. She tempted, Joseph was tempted. First, he was tempted repeatedly. Verse 10, it was as she spoke to Joseph day by day. 
Day by day, she said, lie with me. And then she said it again. And then she said it the next day. And she said it the day after that. This was not one time and then she was done. Oh, got turned down. Okay, I'm fine. No, this may have been every time he went into the house. Every time he had to do something in there near where she was. He was tempted repeatedly. Secondly, he was tempted increasingly. You know that she turned up the heat a little bit the fifth, the sixth, the 30th time that she said this. Notice verse 11. It happened about this time when Joseph went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was inside. Coincidence? Probably not. She probably set it up that way. Planned and purposeful, adjusting her surroundings to make it even more persuasive. None of the men are in the house probably arranging it that way. This, this temptation just building and building and building. Thirdly, she tempted him forcefully. Look at verse number 12. She caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. She had a hold of him at this point. Maybe this was her last ditch effort. She couldn't handle being rejected. How many times had he said no? She said, I'm going I'm to ramp it up even more here. She grabs his coat. She tries to force him to give in to sin. Now, the question here, and you know the answer to the story because you, you know the answer to the question because you know the story, is how does Joseph respond? But before you just go to answering that question, think about Joseph. The odds were definitely stacked against him for responding in the right way. Everything said that he should give in and just not worry about it, right? Just give in. You know, you've already gone through so much. You've already had enough trouble in your life already. Why not live it up a little bit, you know? Why not fit in with the pagan culture? Who's it going to harm? Who's even going to know? And if they do know, why is it even going to matter? It's not like I know anybody here anyways. Besides, aren't slaves supposed to do what their masters tell them to do? Right? Right? He would always have an excuse. He could always say what we say sometimes, right? Well, I didn't, I didn't have a choice. I didn't really have a choice. You know, it would seem here with all these things working against Joseph, there was a whole lot more working for, towards him falling to temptation there, than there was working against him falling. Yet, do you remember what verse 2 said? The Lord was with Joseph. When she does her last ditch effort here to get him, no one else was with him in the room but Potiphar's wife. But the Lord was with Joseph. No one else was with him in Egypt. No one else that would know him or even care. Nobody, no covenant followers of God. But the Lord was with Joseph. And we see here that Joseph was a man of character. Joseph was a man of character. We see his character in two different ways. Look at verse 8. He refused and said to his master's wife, Look, my master does not know what is with me in the house, and he has committed all that he has to my hand. There is no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? 
Joseph was a man of character first because he feared God. He knew God was with him. He knew no one else would know, but God would. And he says in verse 9 there, he says, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? You know, every sin that we commit is probably against one person, if not many people. And every sin that we commit is also against who? God. Every sin we commit is a sin against God. No matter how big it is, or no matter how small we may think it is. And Joseph said, I can't do that. God is with me. God is watching. He feared God. Secondly, he's a man of character because he fled sin. Verse 8, the first time he refused, every time after that he refused, but her pleadings kept getting stronger. And every time her pleading got stronger, his response had to be more severe. And here in verse 12, she makes her biggest advance. Therefore, Joseph has to make his biggest refusal. Verse 12, she grabs his coat. And what does he do? He left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside. Moral of the story, Joseph should stop wearing coats. This is the second coat he's lost, right? When he wears a coat, bad things happen. He needs to come up with another piece of, of clothing. I say that in jest, yet it's true. Joseph lost his coat, but he retained his character. He lost his coat, but he retained his character. He did not forsake God because God had not forsaken him. The Lord was with Joseph. Sixthly here, he was falsely accused. Verse 13, and so it was when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled outside that she called the men of her house and spoke to them. Notice they were close enough. They weren't in the room, but they were close enough for her to get a hold of. Spoke to them saying, see, he has brought into us a Hebrew to mock us. So he's actually, she, her first attack is towards her husband. He came into me to lie with me and I cried out with a loud voice. And it happened when he heard that I lifted my voice and cried out that he left his garment with me and fled and went outside. So she kept his garment with her until his master came home. So Joseph flees from Potiphar's wife and by no fault of his own, his integrity was turned against him. She calls those men in and she begins to tell this lie, this false accusation about Joseph trying to force himself on her. Think for a moment. Do you think those men believed her? They knew her character and they also knew Joseph's character. Yet, they're probably thinking we're in no position to do anything about it. She then kept his garment, verse 16, with her until his master came home. Then she spoke to him with words like these, saying, the Hebrew servant whom you brought to us came in to me to mock me. Sounds like their relationship was a little bit on the rocks too, potentially. Verse 18, so it happened as I lifted my voice and cried out that he left his garment with me and fled outside. So she tells this false accusation of Potiphar when he came home, same question, do you think he believed her? Or did he have little choice but to respond the way that he did? I don't know. That's surmising there. We don't know. But we maybe see a glimmer of that 
that maybe Potiphar didn't even believe his own wife? Because how does he respond? If that were true, he probably would have had Joseph killed. And we see a little glimmer that maybe there's this thing that Potiphar's saying, "Eh, I don't know. And instead of killing Joseph, which would have been potentially appropriate for him to do, allowable for him to do, he does not kill him, but he imprisons him. And so there, once again, you see just this this little glimmer of the mercy of God. He should have died back with his brothers. They wanted to kill him. And here, maybe Potiphar stays his hand from killing Joseph as well and instead puts him in prison. So Joseph lands, once again, in a forgotten place. His up and down journey continues. Favorite son, forgotten slave, favored servant, falsely accused prisoner. Talk about the ups and downs of life. Joseph has us all beat. And at this point, Joseph probably should be bitter at God, shouldn't he? Most of us probably would be. You know, he's 17 years old when he told his brothers his dreams. Jumping ahead in the story slightly, he's 30 years old when he rises to power. From 17 to 30, where is he? In a pit, in slavery, in a prison, forgotten. 17 to 30, we would call those years what? Some of the prime of life, right? When you're strong, when you're ready to conquer the world. And Joseph spent 13 of the best years of his life ruined by the sins of other people. It's not fair. Oh yeah, Joseph's got us all beat on the not fair meter. Life was not fair to Joseph. He deserved none of this, and yet he got it all. Joseph paid for what other people did. Hold on here. What's the picture? Does that sound like anybody? Joseph is a picture of whom? Christ, Jesus Christ. See, both Joseph and Jesus paid dearly for the sins of other people. The people in Joseph's life, they plotted evil against him, and yet all the while God meant it for great good to save many people. Jesus, the evil people in Jesus' life, plotted against him, and they accomplished evil against Jesus, and yet all the while God meant it for good to save many people. Joseph's life is on the scale of saving his family from a famine. Jesus' life is on the scale of saving the world from their sins. Yet the similarities are pretty incredible. God is giving us an Old Testament picture of what Christ would come and do. See, in our economy, Joseph and Jesus were, were in the barren wasteland of abandonment. But from God's perspective, both of them were right where he wanted them. Remember what Thomas Yockham said? Providence may sometimes be dark and mysterious, yet it is always just and righteous. Let's pray. Lord, we know that you are the God who worked for Joseph's good 
and you 